0: Back in January, there was a sister at our church in Cary who, I don't even want to guess her age, you're not supposed to do that, it's just unwise all the way around. And uh, she, I think, was the uh, director of the Alliance uh, Women, whatever it's called these days, it changes names sometimes. And she went into, I think, a hospital or maybe just a a clinic or something for something very minor. And within a matter of days, she was on death's doorstep. Just one of these things where, you know, stuff started shutting down all over the place, tubes all in her and through her and just on life support, and we were getting these updates from her daughter, these very detailed updates uh, explaining things, but also, you know, asking, of course, for prayer, and so prayer was going out all over the place for, for this sister, and, and yet the reports just got worse and worse and worse. Still expectant that the Lord is the Lord, He can do what He wants, but... You know, you've gotten those, right? You've had those situations, and this was like, "Oh boy, Lord, how? Why? What's going on here?" And then it turned around, just out of the blue, began to turn around, and she's now far into her road to recovery. Uh, But that was such a uh, such an impactful thing for our church for it to happen so suddenly, and then and to go so bad, and look like it's all over, and then the Lord to uh, turn things around the way he did. But how many times in other situations have, has someone become sick or whatever in the congregation, and the prayer chains go out, and maybe the prayer vigils go, and maybe there are people fasting, and the Lord chooses not to operate that way? How do we explain that? How do we deal with that? So, I want to begin this morning with an interesting section of Scripture, a well-known part of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 11. And here, the author of Hebrews is recounting the great works of God and how He works in people's lives. And in this section we're reading here, he's recounting all these deliverances and uh, things that the, God, that the Lord brought through these people. And what more shall I say? I do not have time. Boy, do I understand his feeling here. He doesn't have time to say everything he wants to. But we'll keep going. I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again, That's awesome! Hallelujahs, praises, yes, our God is great, He's big, He does all these wonderful things. The very next line begins, there were others who, you can hear the foreboding, (laughs) there were others who, there were others who were tortured. Some faced jeers and flogging and even in chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. Let that one sink in. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated." We can say from these two banks of Scripture that butt right up against each other, and there's no hiccup in between, there's no pause to say, I'm really sorry sorry to have to say this part of it. No, this is all God's glory being revealed, and from these examples, we might say that God works in two different ways to accomplish His will. In the first, He answers our prayers the way we want Him to. He provides us with health and with income and with protection and rescue from danger and stability and peace in our lives. And with this way of God's working, quite frankly, we're very comfortable. This way seems rational and reasonable to us. Not only do we receive the obvious benefits, but this way of God fits our theology. That, that is, it fits our way of understanding who He is. If as He is, He is all-powerful, and if He is all-good, And if we're His children, which we are, then it makes perfect sense that that God would be constantly providing for us, constantly protecting for us, and providing us with all that we need. But His second way of accomplishing His goals and His purposes, His placing us in positions of weakness and of loss and of pain and suffering and death, as we saw in that passage in Hebrews, is a mystery and creates tension within us our prayers go unanswered. Or worse, He answers them in exactly the opposite way to how we've been asking. We pray for health. He gives us sickness. We pray for a steady employment. We lose our job. We lose our stability and peace in life. And we want to and sometimes do cry out, whether verbally or in our souls, what are you doing, Lord? So many of us could attest to that. Now, a large part of the biblical answer for dealing with this and thinking through how God could possibly operate this way is to appeal to His absolute freedom and sovereignty over all areas and through all areas of life and His detailed providential working through all areas, and His wisdom through all of that. And here, we need to pause for a second. If you go soft here, if you go soft on God's sovereignty, then we're already getting off the rails to where I really want to go (laughs) in the message today. And sadly, much of evangelical Christianity, and boy, I'd love to name names. I'll name one, Greg Boyd. Do not buy a book by a guy named Greg Boyd. It's horrific, horrific stuff, but he's published by evangelical publishers, and there, is, there are whole positions, theological positions. I'd love to name the names of those theological positions, but I'd offend half of you if I did that, and I just want to offend you in key areas, not that one right now, <laughs> where people take a general view of God's providence. Oh, God, yes, He's the sovereign one, but yeah, He, he doesn't care about each little raindrop or what's going on in this particular area? Or, well, we live in a fallen world, so that sort of stuff just happens. You ever use that one? Heard that one? Heard it coming out of your mouth sometimes? Or, Satan did it. Or, well, God gives people free will. What are we supposed to What's God supposed to do? He's in a real bind, as though that explains very much or satisfies aching hearts. What kind of a God is that? No, that kind of God-dishonoring, unbiblical, and because I'm a guy I'll say it, pansy way of thinking about our God just won't pass biblical muster. It's just not biblical. God is not only God during the good times. He is not only the active one when things go as we wish. He does not go dormant. He does not go passive. He does not go on a hike. He does not go into His closet when the worst catastrophes and pandemics are afflicting this world or afflicting your household or afflicting your own mind and body. When we scratch down to the deepest roots of any situation that has ever occurred in the history of God's universe, whether good or bad, the Bible allows us to find only one active person. This is not Star Wars, which is an updated ancient heresy called Manichaeism, where at the root, 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 roots of everything, there are two. There's the good guy, the good God, and the bad God. The Scriptures will never allow that. At the roots of everything in terms of the active sphere, it is our God who claims, I create disasters. I create all the good stuff, and guess what? We can't get away from him in the difficult times. And the beauty of that is that he's the only one we can appeal to anyway in the difficult times, so it only makes sense for him to be the active one there. So, for instance, in the book of Job, who ultimately brought on Job's woes? Well, even if you disagree with me over the past three minutes, you you know where I'm coming from on that one. And thankfully, I have the Bible on my side. We read that God stretched out His hand against Job there in Job chapter 1. And in Job chapter 2, God Himself says that He ruined Job. He, not Satan, He, God, not me, God, God ruined Satan, or God ruined Job. But He does so through the agency of Satan and through those Chaldean raiders, and through that mighty wind that blew down the house and killed all Job's children, and through the debilitating disease that Job began to suffer. It is with God alone that Job properly recognizes he is dealing. And so, at the end of chapter one, after the first three of those disasters befall him, what does he say? The Lord gives and Satan took it away from me. The mighty wind took my kids away. We live in a fallen world. Those wicked Chaldean raiders came and stole all my donkeys or whatever it was, sheep. Make people have free will. No. Beneath, when you dig down to the roots, yes, there's all these secondary and tertiary causes, but at the bottom, it's the Lord who actively gave Job all he had, and it is the Lord who took it away. and at the end of chapter 2 after he's been suffering with his phil- physical illnesses and his wife comes to him with that classic bit of biblical counsel to curse god and die and he says you're talking like a foolish woman he 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 honors his wife he's basically saying you're not a foolish woman but right now sister you're talking like a foolish woman shall we not accept good and not evil From the Lord, Job says. And we're told that he didn't sin. That was exactly right. Job had good theology. Now, of course, as the book progresses and the weight of all this becomes too much for Job, he cries out to God page after page, it's a very long book, for release from the pain of his unrelenting anguish and unanswered questions. We could appeal to David or Jeremiah, Habakkuk and other Old Testament giants and even to Jesus' cry from the cross that echo Job's complaints to God. But after saying all that about God's sovereignty, appeal to His sovereignty does not, it takes us part of the way down the road, and without it, we're doomed. But it only takes us part of the way down the road to understanding all that the Scripture would have us understand about why God operates the way He does. Not only do we find, or it's only, I should say, in the New Testament that we find the complement to God's sovereignty that completes the picture of why God operates in the way He does so difficultly in our lives. And that complement is the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ, unknown in the Old Testament in any kind of fullness. In the New Testament, it becomes not merely an event. And I think for many of us, when we think of the cross of Christ, we think, Oh, yes, that is such a central event, keep coughing or something, event that occurred 2,000 years ago that won for us justification and forgiveness of sins and release from the dominion of darkness, and of course it did all of that. But the Scripture, the rest of the New Testament, goes on to tell us so much more about really the, the subterranean like structural shift in paradigmatic way of thinking that changed with the coming of the cross for the people of God and how they were to understand their lives and suffering now through the prism of this new paradigm of how God operates through which the cross was emblematic, the, the, the most profound symbol and evidence of God's way of working. But I don't think we fully get that. And I don't think we're alone in in our failing to fully recognize the impact of this paradigm shift. Even in New Testament times, during the the Gospels, when Jesus came on the scene in the first century in the flesh, Isaiah, Isaiah had foretold the cross, but nobody got it. The Greeks and Romans of the day, they could never have imagined that their high gods, Zeus and Jupiter, could ever possibly allow himself either of those to be killed by humans and the jews would never imagine that yahweh would allow himself the creator of the universe and sustainer of the universe how could he possibly be hanging on a cross how could it possibly possibly happen the illustration that comes to my mind here is one of fireworks have you ever been to a fireworks show of course you've been to a fireworks show so you don't have to raise your hands so, on those July Fourth evenings, when we're hoping it doesn't start raining, you know you're seeing the fireworks and they're going off. You're sitting on a blanket in the grass somewhere with your family or friends, or whatever, and they're beginning and they're shooting off. And toward the end, before it's just all bombs, uh, they they begin to show the the best of the of the uh, most colorful and largest of the of the fireworks, and you'll hear them go, and then it goes, and it just goes arcing up, and you can see like the sparkly going up, and you're like, oh baby. Oh, baby, I wonder what this one's going to be. Wow! It's like an American flag or whatever it might be, just huge and really cool. Well, that's what at least the Jews of the first century were looking forward to for their God to show I hate the expression show up, for God to appear on the scene uh, with all His majesty and His power. They had these Old Testament scriptures. They had the Exodus They had different miracles that occurred in Elijah and Elisha's ministry, and all sorts of things in the Old Testament. And the Ark of God's coming was was getting higher and higher, and they were expecting Him. And right at the at the peak, at the apogee, where it's supposed to just explode on the scene, where Messiah is supposed to come and blow everybody away, it's like it was a dud (laughs) and fell to the ground the crucifixion of the Son of God. And so on the road to Emmaus, the disciples, Jesus is talking with them incognito. They're like, we thought he was the one. We were, we were expecting the big show and it turned to be, out to be a dud. Something happened. We can't understand it. And that's so often our lives as well. We're expecting God to operate in some particular way, and it doesn't turn out that way. But of of course, the cross was not a dud. (laughs) The cross was the greatest presentation and demonstration of the power of God that has been or ever will be. And we thought it was a dud. (laughs) They thought it was a dud. And so often we think of the suffering times in our lives, which is so often, to be somehow dud times or what's god doing or maybe he's off somewhere whatever our theology allows and yet he tells us that is how i operate redemptively and we need to get on board with that and it's so mind-changing for us to even think in those kinds of terms now the apostle paul most clearly writes about this in first corinthians chapter one Uh, And so I want us to uh, read that in just a moment, but before we do, I want us to have a couple of, a few things to keep in mind as we read this extended passage. Paul will play off against each other different, different paradoxes or juxtapositions, the wisdom and intelligence, God's wisdom and intelligence, which we think is foolishness and our wisdom and intelligence, which God calls foolishness. And strength and power, what we think are emblems of strength and power, and God calls weakness. And what we see as weakness, God says, that's what He shows power through. And worldly influence, which is so important to us, versus lowliness and insignificance, which is the way God chooses and through which God chooses to operate. So, we read, beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, Paul writes, not with wisdom and eloquence. Now listen, not with wisdom and eloquence. Why, Paul? Lest the cross of Christ be emptied. Wow, that's, like, that's an amazing statement. Empty or emptied of power. How, how could Paul, preaching with eloquence? you know, getting, getting some preaching lessons at Toastmasters or at, at, at Bible college or seminary, how could that possibly evacuate the power and accomplishment of the cross of Christ? Is he saying if I suddenly become a better preacher and stop using ums and ahs as much as I used to, that somehow all those people who have been saved by the cross will somehow lose their salvation and their sins will be back upon them? Of course not. He's talking about this paradigm shift, this understanding of of how the cross now echoes out and alters deep structures of how we're to think about God and His operating. He says, why? Because if I start preaching like some of the philosophers, the traveling philosophers of the day, or the traveling charlatans of the day, and I suddenly get a deep and resonant voice, and all sorts of beautiful ways of speaking things, and I get my illustrations down, and I'm able to get my sermon down to 33 and a half minutes, or whatever it might be, that somehow you might start looking at me. You might start looking at me and my ability. And so the cross, the power of God which works through weakness would be voided. And I never want that to happen. I never want me, Paul says, to be front and center or anything about me, my hairstyle, my clothes, my whatever, because it's the gospel through weakness that through in which God brings about His power and accomplishes His ways. He did it then. He did it at the cross. He did it later in Paul's ministry, and that is how it is throughout the church age, and we have to get that. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power it, the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. That's what one of the things god's in the business of doing the intelligence of the intelligent i will frustrate think of the intelligent people in the world today or the people who call themselves intelligent or the wise people or the people we attribute wisdom to oh that's really high they went to what school or that school oh, they have this degree they have five degrees ooh that's really cool blah blah, blah 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 i will destroy the wisdom of the wise the intelligence of the intelligent i will frustrate where is the wise person where is the teacher of the law? Speaking to Jews, where is the philosopher of this age, more on the Greek side? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The wisdom of the world. What is the wisdom of the world? The Republicans, libertarians, Democrats, the flaming libs on the one side, the nutcase conservatives on the other side, all different varieties of human religions and thinking. That's all part of the world. It's all part of the world. For since in the the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know Him, nobody's ever figured out God. Nobody's ever figured out God. It's all revelation to us. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached, the gospel message, to save those who believe. Jews demand a sign, demand signs. Acts of power and Greeks are looking for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, stumbling block to Jews. That word stumbling block is where we get our word for scandal, stumbling block for the Jews. How could God possibly be hanging on a cross? That's absurd. That's idiotic. It's idiotic. And if you just step out for a second of your churchy ways of thinking, I don't mean gospel ways of thinking, I mean your churchy ways of thinking because your upbringing, you're brought up in central North Carolina or whatever, and so you've been listening to preaching and stuff for your whole lives or whatever. It's crazy for a God to be hanging on a cross. It is just idiotic. And people who look at the cross pagan people who look at the cross, when you're trying to tell them about how special Jesus is, they have a right to say, you're an idiot because your God's an idiot. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem now, there's a place called the pavement, and they, they found it. It's, it's, a, uh, it's, it's part of the barracks of, of, of Roman soldiers from the second century, about hundred years after uh, Jesus died and was resurrected and in, in scrawled into the pavement there the roman soldiers messing around whatever Inscrawled scrawled in there is this this rough picture of a cross with a donkey hanging on it and it says below I forgot the guy's name cornelius we'll call him Cor, and he's being mocked cornelius worships his god there's an ass hanging on the cross And there's some idiotic Roman soldier worshiping. That's how the pagans viewed it. Because it it is that. It's weakness. It's loss. It's ugliness. It's suffering. And the wise one, the only wise one, out of all the means for salvation that he could have chosen to, to bring salvation to this world, any, he could have chosen any path he wanted. He's God. He chose this path, the wisest of all paths, and we don't see it the way we should. That you are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. The cross turns all of our assumptions, or our assumptions about so many things in life, the most important things in life, on their heads. What seems foolish is actually wisdom. What seems like the epitome of weakness is actually strength. And what seems lowly and despised is exalted. We would think. That when God finally appears, as I mentioned earlier, to his creation, he would appear as the all wise and the all powerful king taking his throne. And he calls that kind of thinking, at least for the church age, foolish. Why? Because that's how every religion on the planet views their God. The Egyptians viewed Pharaoh and the different Anubis, different gods like that as well. When God appears, Or the chief gods appear, power starts flowing out all over the place in very obvious ways. God's like, no, I am not going to go that way. That's how humans would imagine, fallen humans, wicked humans who hate me and rebel against me and who are darkened in their understanding. That's how they think. I'm not going that way. I'm going to go through the opposite way of what they could ever imagine to accomplish my purposes. In fact, it, Paul tells us that it pleases God to act in this way, to take all of man's arrogance and vaunted self-assurance about the meaning or meaninglessness of life, about what is right and what is wrong, about what is wise and foolish, about what is strength and what is weakness. What is significant and what is truly insignificant? What is a value? What really is a value and what is worthless? It pleases God to turn all of that on its head and accomplish His redemptive plan through seeming foolishness, loss, suffering, and insignificance. After the early church, it was the reformer Martin Luther, the reformer in the, in the 1500s who recovered and most clearly articulated this fundamental New Testament understanding of how God works and how Christians are to expect Him to work most of the time. Luther looked around himself as a late medieval Roman Catholic academic and monk. He saw the church what he was a part of had its hands all over the levers of power and influence and wealth and the educational systems of the day. And that that church had then created a theology to justify this position it occupied as a major power broker in society. And that theology, Luther called a theology of glory. That sounds good, but actually he meant it in a very negative way. Theology of glo- glory meaning outward show, outward shows of power and influence. He said, you know what? As i read reading my scriptures, I just don't see God operating that way. That's just not how he's chosen to do it. So, as he pondered what we've read in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and other places, Luther began to see that God's act of restoring life to the world through the death and crucifixion even of his son was really just the most profound display of many examples of what Luther came to term a theology of the cross. Theology of the cross, that's good. So, you're supposed to think to yourself, theology of glory is bad. Theology of the cross is what's good. So, if somebody gives gives you a test after this sermon that you'll be able to answer that. Through the prism of this seemingly reverse logic, this upside down way of thinking about God and His ways, Luther began to see how other parts of Scripture, difficult and mysterious and and hard to understand parts of Scripture, began to flow together and fit now with this different understanding, this understanding that lined up much more closely with the direction that the New Testament is going, this weak way, this foolish way. So forsaking some Old Testament examples, we'll just, I'll just bring out some that are really just found, for the most part, in the Sermon on the Mount, just one section of the New Testament in Jesus' teaching. So think about how, I mean, if you really think about them, these things, you'll think to yourself, yeah, I've never really fo- fully understood that text. That, that's a toughie for me. At least it is for this, for this guy standing up here today. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Yeah, that's, that's tough. Blessed, happy, it could be translated borders, that word borders into happy, not just blessed in some, you know, religious sense, but like truly happy and deeply thrilled are the poor in spirit. Yeah, I just, that's tough. Blessed are those who mourn. Whoa, that's like upside down. Blessed are you when people insult you. Yeah, I wonder how you all do with that one. Persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Not only are you blessed, rejoice. And not just rejoice. I'm rejoicing, Lord. Be glad. That one you can't conjure up. You're either glad or you're not glad. So, are you there where you're being persecuted and you're glad about it? Mm, Like, wow. I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Yeah. Do not resist an evil person. Yeah, what do, we, what do we do with that one? We have police. We have locks on our doors. In Old Fort, they don't lock their cars. I don't know what you guys do here. We do in carry. Do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. And if anyone wants to sue you, and take your shirt or whatever, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go to one mile, go two miles. Love your enemies. Love your en- Think of your enemies. Think of people you are really not happy with on the world stage today or maybe in your household or maybe in the church or somewhere at the gas station. Okay. Love them. Do you love them? Do you love them? If I picked out the person that ticks you off the most in the news right now or in Washington or down the street, and said, Do you love that person? Are you loving that person? Are you praying for that person? Hmm. And if you asked me the same, I'd just hide underneath this kind of quasi-pulpit thing here. Pray for those who persecute you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. this is the most like laughable one. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. There are Christian ministries that teach us how to better what? store up for ourselves treasures on earth and our Lord says do not store for yourselves treasures." that's a toughie I haven't figured that one out yet Paul has I'm sure but uh uh, that's for a different sermon don't store for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal I praise you Father Lord of heaven and earth praise you because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned what things has he hidden from wise people He's hidden the means of salvation. It's like serious things God's hidden intentionally from wise people. That's tough. And revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. It wasn't a grudging decision on God's part. He's pleased to do that. Finally, when you give a luncheon, not the end of the sermon, just finally for this part, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends. (laughs) Okay. you bunch of sinners (laughs) yeah don't invite your friends when was the last time you had lunch or dinner and didn't invite your friends or your brothers or sisters thought you'd get out of it or your relatives or your rich neighbors why why shouldn't we do that if you do so they might invite you back might invite you back and you'll be repaid they might invite you back that's why we do it we're in relationships with people right uh, I'll, I'll pick up the tab today, Bill. Yeah, next time. Hey, Bill, man, I picked it up last time. So, you know, yeah, come on, buddy. We're friends, right? <laughs> okay, whatever. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, mm. the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. This is, these, these are theology of the cross. These are things indicative of what I'm talking about here. These make sense only when we get what God did by crushing His Son, as Isaiah says, on the cross 2,000 years ago. Now, the theology of the cross, combined with God's absolute sovereignty, freed New Testament saints from the fear of death, as Hebrews says, and provided them with a completely different means of comprehending suffering. This is very, very important. Paul can write, as we know, about rejoicing in his sufferings, rejoicing in his weaknesses. Jesus talks about being glad and rejoicing in persecution. This is, this is different stuff than what we read about in the Old Testament, Lam, Lamentations or the laments of David or Habakkuk and things like that. And Paul's not the only one through whom the Holy Spirit is trying to hammer home this new way of thinking. And so... We see in the beginning of the letter of James, this well-known passage, "'Consider it pure joy,' James teaches his people. "'My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds,' And the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 10, but recall the former days. His people were kind of ebbing in their faith and weakening. And he says, remember earlier in your Christian lives when you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Again, only makes sense if our thinking has been renewed, as Romans 12 talks or 12.1 talks about, the renewing of our minds, renewing a new way of thinking and understanding God, joyfully accepting plundering of your property, Christians, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And finally, for our purposes 1 Peter chapter 4, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. Basically, any time we see God choosing to go the weak and suffering route, which is His normal way, To accomplish his plans and gain glory, that is an example of the theology of the cross. Now, as we continue to consider the second way of God's working, this theology of the cross, it might be helpful to understand or to see some specifics. I mean, we've been talking kind of at the 30,000-foot level, but but what did it mean in the day-to-day life for Paul to talk this way? How did it affect him down at the ground level? what kinds of things specifically is he talking about well thankfully there's a passage in second corinthians that paul gives us that's basically a travel log maybe a yearly travel log for paul describing many different events that have happened in his life and he concludes by describing these as evidences of this weakness that he so longs this place of weakness that he longs to be in and so we read in second corinthians Chapter eleven, beginning in verse twenty-four. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes, minus one. Do you remember that movie that came out about seventeen years ago, eighteen years ago? Uh, the, uh, the the uh, Passion of the Christ. Remember that one? I mean, that is a brutal movie. If you ever saw it, I saw it once. I don't want to see it again. It's an interesting movie, but they bring out what the forty lashes. Were like. It wasn't like in the movies from the 50s about Jesus where you just see it from a distance. I mean, they showed the gore of it. Paul received that five times at this writing. Maybe he had more afterwards. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. You might be asking yourselves, where was God in all of this? You're an apostle, man. I'm sure, people were praying for you. Sure, you were praying for yourself when the decision came down to get the 40 lashes. Probably praying for himself, Lord, you know, I don't want this. Can you please like, find another way? Nope, five times. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers. I have been in in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked If I must boast, I get this boast thing again, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The things he's just outlined here are things that show his weakness. This is the life of one of God's closest friends, the Apostle Paul. Not constant deliverances from physical abuse, not constant miracles, not ever peaceful sleep, not always enough food and clothes, no consistent suffering. There's a a Roman Catholic mystic, her name is Teresa of Avila, and I don't necessarily recommend that you read her stuff, but there's a famous saying about her, an event that she claims happened in her life when she at At the end of a very difficult period of of struggle and suffering in her life, she claims that God appeared to her in a vision. And he was encouraging her and comforting her, and he said, This is how I treat my friends. And she responded, Well then, Lord, it is not surprising that you have so few. And just a few verses later, from what we are reading here, in the famous thorn-in-the-flesh passage, Paul continues on, and he writes, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away, that is the thorn away from me, whatever the thorn is. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. I wonder how Paul took that at first. Man, I'm really suffering And your encouragement to me, Lord, is your grace is sufficient for me? Hmm. He says, continues, my power is made perfect in weakness. The weaker you are, Paul, the more I have you in places of weakness and suffering and loss. Correspondingly, my power is shown stronger and stronger through you. And Paul bought into it. Paul accepted that, and so he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, his travel log, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. That's where that passage is situated. Now you've be begun at this point to notice that the word boasting and boast keep popping up in these passages that describe God's choice to work through weakness, pain, and suffering. We might ask, what is the proper reaction when we're going through suffering as a Christian? Perhaps it's to grudgingly suck it up and deal with it. Some of us do it that way. Some of us do it that way sometimes. Perhaps we're to stoically bear with it. We know those people. They look so godly. We sometimes make them elders. Nope, that's not enough. That's that's not good enough. That's not adequate for the Christian to just bear with it. Paul says, I will rejoice in these things. Jesus says to rejoice and be glad in these things. Peter says to rejoice. James says to count it all joy. The writer of Hebrews says, remember when your stuff was taken away from you, how you joyfully accepted it. All these voices the New Testament crying out to us. If you get the way God truly works, your God, not the gods out there or the gods in your head, your imaginations, but the only God, the real God, And you'll be able to see more and more how it totally makes sense to rejoice in the difficulties and trials that come our way. So, I want to conclude now with just a few applications. To be sure, there will come a day when God demonstrates His power through what we call a theology of glory. As we read, for instance, in Revelation 19, where Christ will return a second time in a blaze of glory with conquering armies of heaven at His side, and He will rule the nations with an iron scepter. That is a theology of glory, and that day is coming. This is where the health and wealth, folks, that evil teaching so prevalent in the church is so, so wrong. And not just the health and wealth, but we see it even in other aspects of evangelical teaching and even the evangelical movement, where we're seeking clout in worldly ways. We're seeking to get our hands on levers of power or at least influence. It's really, really important to us. That plays in to this same sort of theology of glory. But the problem is not, as we're seeing, there will come a day where the theology of glory makes perfect sense. The the issue isn't one of content. The issue is one of timing. But it is damnable timing to demand that God work as He promises, let's see for you guys looking this way, in the future, demand that He operate as He's promised to operate in the future, in the present. You know, we sang that song. Good song. It's a modern song, but it's a good one. Uh, about uh, do do you know? No, what is it? Do, do do you believe? Do you whatever? Do you whatever? You know, and it's like do you do you moan are you are you longing for this thing or you do you believe in the future? He's going to yes, we believe yes in the future, and it screws everything up to set it now. And the reason I say it's so hellish and demonic is because literally that's what it is. That is literally what Satan tempted Jesus to do at the beginning of his ministry. It's like, you are the son of God. Pour it on, man. Bring down the armies of heaven. Do whatever it takes to show your glory. Now, in the here and now. And Jesus is like, that's not the plan. That's not the way my father is operating. I have to suffer and I have to die. And when we choose the root of what Satan was tempting Jesus to do early in his ministry with those three temptations, we are playing right into his satanic hand. It's that bad. I'm not joking using these words. I I hate when I hear people use the word hell or death demonic or whatever in loose ways because they are such serious words, and I'm using them in their full seriousness. The health and wealth teaching in our age is hellishly bad, and we may reject that and think we're all right, but then we play into other areas that play into what we're talking about here where we mix up the timing and demand God do things now that He hasn't promised to do. Secondly, what do we expect from Jesus in this life? You became a Christian. What do you expect? Becoming a Christian. Extended, decent health. A comfy, cozy existence in some kind of American way that you kind of, your parents thought was right and you're hoping will be the same for you and your kids, whatever that may look like and all sorts of permutations. Enough social stability so that the stock market and our 401Ks don't tank before we're laid to rest. We can't read the Gospels or the book of Acts or the letters of the New Testament or especially the book of Revelation without seeing that it is part and parcel of God's plan to disrupt this world and to do so by disrupting our lives. First of all, as I said, He arranges things intentionally so that we, He will place us in positions of weakness. So we cry out, why would you put me here? Maybe sometimes we should be crying out, why am I in such a good position right now? That's a little scary. He wants to show his strength in and through us. And as Paul writes, when I am weak, then I am strong. God is in the business of bringing suffering your way and my way. Not for some sadistic reasons, but because he is the all-wise one. He just knows so much more than we do. And he cares for us so much more. And he knows when we're there, our deepest joys will be fulfilled and his greatest power will be shown through us. And that's, I say that and I know I've suffered far, far less than so many of you in this congregation. So I say that very gently. Thirdly, as in Luther's day and in every age where the church finds itself in the unusual and unexpected position of being able to influence or be influenced by worldly power structures, can we learn once again from the early church and from the persecuted church around the world not to be tempted to go down that road? The world is the world. Do we get that? Do we get the, the incalculable difference between the world structures, any of them, gas stations, laundromats, political systems even the american one any of them it's part of the world and then there is this other thing and there's only one other thing apart from the world as far as we know in our existence and that's called the church everything else is part of the world other religions political systems political systems you don't like political systems you do like socialism capitalism other isms, whatever. That's part of how the world operates. And although there may be significant numbers of believers operating within a particular world system at a particular time, doesn't make that world system somehow kind of like have the church. No. It's just believers functioning within the world system. But it's still the world. And it will never be the church. It was never intended to be the church. The church is a church. She has her own marching orders, her own Christ-given goals and ways of doing things. Our Lord never instructed us to go make the world or the world system better. He told us to go and make disciples of those He would call out of that system through the preaching of the gospel and our displays of love toward neighbor and enemy. You know, in Russia, the historic institutional church is usually closely aligned with the secular political leadership, the world. The one scratches the other's back. It's pretty helpful, so to speak. And each wants the public support of the other. The result is constant compromise on the part of that church. She tries to serve two masters. But the tiny evangelical church mercifully is spared this temptation to worldly and political influence. She is indifferent towards secular structures around her. She has no dreams of changing Russia or Russia's political systems in in those sorts of terms, nor being supported by the political system. She will not settle for the fleshly calling of changing the way politics is done in her country a calling that any number of secular groups will always be willing to to do and probably do better. She will settle only for the calling given uniquely to her, the highest calling of winning souls to Christ one by one and working with them to grow into the fullness of Christ. And no church anywhere in history could ask for more. Finally, How deeply has this biblical theology of the cross penetrated into our own lives? We're usually quick as evangelicals to give praise to God for his obvious provisions for us and correctly answered prayers. I mean, I, I seriously, I still do this, if you can imagine. When I'm pulling into a crowded parking lot, Walmart, of course, with like 500 spots that you can't occupy, and then there's one that's within a half mile, I'm like, thanks, Lord. And I think to myself, that's good, you thank the Lord. And I'm like, how shallow, man. (laughs) You have so many other things going on constantly that he's blessing you with, and you fail to bless, thank him for those. And then you have all this minor suffering things that go on, and you don't thank him for those. And And it's just a reminder, Matt, you are so shallow still. Oh my goodness. You still really don't get it. We tend to hem and haw when God acts in the slightest way toward us As he did toward his beloved son or toward job or toward habakkuk or toward others but neither way of god is troubling for god he accomplishes exactly what he wants when he wants when he gives us whatever comes our way in our lives that news should be freeing for us as it was for the apostle paul god cannot lose and we in christ cannot lose either and finally finally i added one What does the theology of cross have to do with missions? I thought, you know, you guys brought me here for missions, so I need to add a final point on this for that. Well, just about everything. The Apostle Paul writes further, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Now, he's writing in a mission context, but he's saying exactly the same thing, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then this is the key, so then death is at work in us, the apostles, the missionaries going out, but life is at work in you, Corinthians. The more we die, the more you gain life, Christ's life through our death, through our weakness and our suffering. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people, this is missions, may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Amen.